This is Radio EcoShock with Alex Smith. How can we handle the awful knowledge about climate and losing nature? And why do so many people deny the obvious science? First guest, cognitive scientist Philip Fernbach discovered a disturbing mechanism in society and the mind. Then, in the face of polycrisis, threatening to become permanent, former World Watch editor Eric Asadurian explains the new Gaian way. Can this help? Another mega heat wave and Uncle Frank claims the global warming scare is a hoax. Susan at work rails against masks and vaccines, even when half the staff are off sick. Most of us have someone like that in our lives. If scientists discover how the world works and can prove it, why doesn't everyone understand? We all want to know. So does Philip Fernbach. At the University of Colorado Boulder, he is a cognitive scientist and professor of marketing at the Leeds School of Business. Philip is co-author of the book, The Knowledge Illusion, Why We Never Think Alone. Fernbach's co-authored paper in the journal Science is Dead On. Knowledge over confidence is associated with anti-consensus views on controversial scientific issues. Let's investigate what people think they know. Philip Fernbach, welcome to Radio EcoShock. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. A big majority of scientists accept things like evolution, the Big Bang Theory, and climate change. They produce mountains of studies drawing on all the verifiable facts they can find. Why doesn't that information flow out easily to everyone? <laughs> that's, that's sort of the $65,000 question right there. There's a lot of nuance and complexity to the answer. Um, but very briefly, to sort of start our conversation, what I would say is that as human beings, we tend to know relatively little as individuals. The world is wildly complex. And as individuals, we just can't possibly master that much um, in terms of knowledge of the world. And instead, what makes human beings special is not our ability as individuals to know a ton, but our ability to form into communities where different people have different bits of information and we have what we call communities of knowledge. We're participating in communities of knowledge. So um, as an individual, I might not have enough information to actually form a reasoned judgment about whether climate change is a real thing and so on. But what I can do is I can draw on other people in my community who know more than I do, and I can reach a position that way. That's kind of how we form positions as human beings in these groups, these communities. And the problem uh, arises because sometimes our communities get things wrong. And as individuals, we both don't know enough to really know when we've got things wrong, um, but we also tend to suffer from overconfidence about our own personal knowledge. By virtue of participating in these communities, we feel like we understand these issues better than we do. So if everyone in your community is saying that they have a particular position on climate change or some other complex issue, we sort of nod along and and we don't realize that we ourselves lack the information to make a reasoned judgment. Um, and so we become stuck in our ways, and it can be very hard to actually break through that because if someone comes along and says, no, you've got it wrong, it's very easy for me to fall back on the idea that people in my community t told me such and such, or I understand the issue myself, and I'm not really going to listen to you because um, I sort of already have, a, have an understanding of this issue. So that's sort of a one-minute answer to, to probably uh, you know, a much more complex and nuanced situation. 
So how large is the population who dispute what most scientists agree is reality? That's a great question. It really is issue-dependent. So for some issues, it's um, very prevalent. For instance, we've done a lot of work on um, people's um, rejection of genetically modified foods, and that's an issue where opposition is very, very high, and uh, many, many people are scared of GMOs, think they're unsafe, and, and that kind of stuff, in, in contrast with, with what the experts tend to say. And um, those numbers are even higher in Europe, actually, relative to the U.S., but it can be you know, more than half of the population. For other kinds of issues, they tend to be, you know, like a rejection of climate change is another one, um, which is, is very prevalent um, and, and tends to break down very strongly along partisan lines. Other issues, like, for instance, um, vaccine hesitancy or rejection of vaccination, those tend to be um, a smaller number, maybe uh, on the order of 10% or so. But even uh, a small number like that can be very problematic because it can lead to people not getting vaccinated, and that can lead to, for instance, uh, reaching herd immunity slower as a, as a population, which uh, makes a pandemic drag on, for instance. So um, a lot of these things are fairly prevalent, but it really is issue-specific. Well, it also led to people calling themselves truckers, but they were anti-vaccination people, taking over the capital of Canada for three weeks uh, last year. So it can get pretty extreme. Now, if people doubt climate science, are they also more likely to discount vaccination or, or to believe that homeopathy works? Is this a broad characteristic, a kind of personality type that rejects authority? I think there, there is some component of that, but it does not explain everything. So there are people who are, in general, more suspicious of expertise, and they will take a contrarian position on a lot of different things. But what we see in our data is a lot of um, variability across issues in terms of who the people are who, who maintain those positions. So some positions are much more partisan in nature, and some are more evenly distributed across different ideological groups. So, for instance, I, I mentioned genetically modified foods and vaccination. Both of those actually, in our data, tend not to break along partisan lines. Vaccination is changing somewhat because of COVID being very polarized, so you get more rejection of the COVID vaccine specifically. But historically, things like homeopathic medicine, vaccination, and other kinds of things, um, you have uh, um, people who have very strong opinions both on the left and the right about those issues. And so it's really about extremity more so than it is about ideology. Why do people become so passionate about their knowledge? I mean, they can get really angry. Why the heat? Absolutely. You know, you mentioned the paper that we published a few months ago, which uh, I think um, is a pretty important finding. And the result is that when we look at the people with the strongest counter-consensus views on a lot of these issues that we're talking about, they have the lowest levels of objective knowledge. So if you actually test them on their understanding of the science, they score the lowest. Um, but if you ask them how well they understand the technology or the specific science around these issues, they actually have the strongest feeling of understanding. So we call that subjective knowledge. So it's kind of a perverse effect, which is that they have this huge gap between what they know and what they think they know. That's what sort of characterizes these people who have these very strong counter-consensus views. And um, I think that that is part of the answer to your question, which is that when we have this overconfidence about our knowledge, it can really support a very passionate and strong view because we feel like we understand the issue um, and we have sort of an overly simplified view of it. 
The other thing that is a big part of the answer to your question is these communities that I talked about before. Issues tend to get polarized because within a community, people take on a particular view, and then um, outside of the people outside of the community, they don't trust. And within the community, they do trust. And then um, what happens is, as by being a member of the community, these views become more than just knowledge or, or, or just something that you believe. They become part of your identity about who you are. In that situation, you're going to want to defend your positions uh, very strongly. And so you might not necessarily be open, as open-minded to hearing counter-evidence, or you might dismiss the counter-evidence and think you're listening to it, but not really taking it on board, and um, very passionately wanting to defend your position. When I teach um, what we call belief updating, so how do you change your beliefs in the light of new evidence to my students, I talk about the distinction between what a scientist does and what a lawyer does. And um, a scientist, well, a good scientist, not, you know, <laughs> science is a, is a complex social phenomenon, but um, what an idealized view of science is that we try to get to the truth by taking on evidence and revising our beliefs. A lawyer um, tries to defend their position, whatever it is. And so, um, you know, we're often lawyers when it comes to this thing, these things more so than what we are scientists. And we tend to think of self-affirming but ignorant people as perhaps poor or rural or uneducated. But your study found education is not a protection against anti-science? Okay, so the answer to your question is a little more complex than that. What we look at is the relationship between knowledge of a particular issue and then the, in general how that predicts the strength of these counter-consensus views. We do also look at education level and use that as what we call a control. So if we control for education and we look at issue-specific knowledge or general science literacy, it's still the case that that predicts having an extreme view. And so um, I think what you said is correct, which is that two people that have differing levels of education, the person with the lower level of science knowledge is going to tend to have the more extreme view. But uh, I do think that education in general does correlate with having more extreme views, about more extreme counter-consensus views. And uh, that's because, you know, education leads for instance, to learning more about the scientific consensus, sort of learning more about the complexity of the issue and so on. But this is not just about low education people. High education people can be susceptible and prone also to having kind of incorrect beliefs about science. Um, it happens all the time. I don't know. Our top public health officer in British Columbia just told a televised press conference that masks do not really help in a pandemic. And she said that the COVID doesn't really spread in kids at school, so schools are safe. So it sounds like anti-science, well, we won't even mention a former president, some anti-science can penetrate to the top of governments. Absolutely, yeah. Especially when it becomes polarized in that way, because it can be a very powerful thing. You know, if you're a member of that community and those are the views of the community, you're going to take on those views sort of habitually and, uh, and they're going to be part of who you are. It's part of your identity. It's very hard to change. And so we definitely see misinformation. I mean, you know, I don't know the Canadian news as well as I do in, in America, but in America, we use the word epidemic, but we've had an epidemic of false beliefs, misinformation sort of exploding into the public eye. And some of these things are really extreme, crazy things like the QAnon conspiracy theory, which um, contends that there's this cabal of pedophiles controlling world events and so on. 
And that really exploded into the mainstream here because it became a very popular conspiracy theory among a lot of people, you know, a significant proportion of people and was even, you know, nodded to by um, people in our government as well. So we're, we're seeing the same kinds of things in the U.S. as you are in Canada, for sure. And you've talked about community several times, but that definition is really changing somewhat because of the pandemic isolating us and people's tendency to go online more. And we see that Google and YouTube are more likely to suggest anti-science information about global warming than they are this show. They had to rewrite their algorithms to avoid promoting damaging information on misinformation on covid Can we blame the Internet for connecting formerly isolated extremists into clubs and online echo communities? I think it's a huge issue, absolutely. And it's not, um, it didn't start with COVID. You know, it's um, been going on for several years. And they they call this idea filter bubbles. And there's, there's actually a lot of academic research on the extent to which filter bubbles really exist and so on. But it seems absolutely true to me that people are getting a lot of their information via social media in networks that are sort of isolated from counter-information or in in which the counter-information can't really penetrate. And that's a huge, huge problem. I talked quite a bit about this visit that I made a few years ago to the meeting of the the, the Flat Earth International Organization, which is a group of flat earthers. And they really believe that the Earth is flat. And um, I went to their conference in Denver, their international conference in Denver, and it was fascinating. But one thing I definitely learned there is the power of the community to um, help sustain these kinds of beliefs because people are all there. It's almost like a religious revelry where everybody is partying and having a great time talking about this stuff. And all of the information flow is happening within the community. So they're all talking to each other. Um, and they're sort of, um, it becomes an in-group, out-group sort of situation where the counter-information is easily dismissed because it's coming from people who don't trust, whereas all of the information to verify the beliefs about Flat Earth, which is a pretty, you know, pretty extreme, <laughs> pretty wild view of the world, um, it's all coming from within the community. And the reason I think that Flat Earth took off over the last few years, Flat Earth beliefs have been around since the Middle Ages. These groups that are trying to, to reject the heliocentric view of the solar system, and and, um, and they've been around for a long time, but they really took off with the proliferation of the Internet because now people can search up YouTube videos, they see the YouTube videos, and the YouTube videos you know, create this community and everybody can sort of interact together via the Internet in a way that's much easier than it was. You know, say 20 or 30 years ago, when people were, were writing newsletters and communicating via snail mail and then occasionally getting together with some other people who have the same views at conferences and so on. Um, nowadays, it's just so much easier for these communities to form and to, and to proliferate. I'm Alex Smith. Get it all at our website, ecoshock.org. You were listening to Radio Ecoshock. I'm Alex Smith. Our guest is cognitive scientist Dr. Philip Fernbach from the University of Colorado. And we're looking at how false knowledge could block out established scientific truth. You studied and published on polarization in society and at one point suggested it might be somewhat overblown. Talk to us about your February 2022 article in Current Opinion in Psychology. Yeah, that's a, that's a great a great idea. So that paper is a review paper of a phenomenon that's called false polarization. And, and the term false polarization is a little misleading. So the idea is we have polarization, obviously, so... People on both sides of the aisle have views that differ. That's polarization. Polarization takes many forms. There's issue polarization, so we have different views on the issues. 
There's also what's called affect polarization. That's the idea that we think that people on the other side of the aisle are bad. We think that, that they're evil, that they're insensitive, and all these other kinds of things. So there's various kinds of polarization. But false polarization is the idea that if I ask you about somebody on the other side, how strongly do they feel, you actually over-exaggerate the extent of polarization. So that's called false, false polarization. So in the U.S., if I'm a Democrat, I think all Republicans have these very strong views on all the issues, and everybody has the same view on the other side. And likewise, if I'm a Republican making judgments about Democrats. If you actually ask the people about their views, they're more nuanced, um, and there's more variability within their ideological group. They're not as extreme, and so on and so forth. So um, what we did in that um, paper is, is reviewed all the literature, suggesting that, in fact, false polarization does exist, and it's a major problem because if my view is that you have this really extreme view on the other side, I'm not really going to be open to talking to you or trying to negotiate with you because it seems pointless. And so I think this false polarization actually ends up contributing to real polarization. And uh, what we do in the paper is we talk about some of the psychological phenomena that we think are responsible for false polarization. And we talk about things like um, what we call categorical thinking. Categorical thinking is the idea that we tend to think in terms of categories. And when we think in terms of categories, we think about sort of the prototypical member of that category. So if I think of a Republican, I don't think of an average Republican. I think of a prototypical Republican who has very strong, extreme views that are very different from mine if I'm a Democrat. And vice versa, if if I'm a Republican thinking about what a Democrat is like, you know, you're, you're, you're picturing somebody with, with much more extreme views than the average. Another thing we talk about is the idea of oversimplification. We tend to think of everybody having these views and we oversimplify the issue and think about it in like black and white terms, whereas most real world issues are really complex. Like you mentioned uh, masking before, like the question of masking is, is a really complex one that has to do with the costs and benefits of masking, which are all probabilistic. And it's not like we should all be wearing masks all the time forever. That might reduce transmission of disease, but also is not something that most people would want. And it's also not like we should never have masks under any conditions. You know, the, the truth is probably somewhere in the middle and is a, is a weighing of costs and benefits. Um, but when we oversimplify the issue, um, it becomes black and white, like masks, yes versus no. And then that happens a lot as well. So um, that can lead to um, this false polarization as well, because I think that everybody on the other side of the aisle has this very black and white view and doesn't actually have any nuance to what they believe. So some opponents of well-accepted scientific ideas tell us they are expressing their individuality and that they're self-taught. They may know more than the doctors or the scientists. In your book with Steve Sloman, though, as a cognitive scientist, you find that's pretty unlikely. You say, we never think alone. What do you mean by that? Yeah, that's, that's probably one of the most important ideas in our book, is the idea that human cognition is really not built for individual thinking. And a lot of people do kind of, I think, have the misperception that the highest form of intelligence is really about individual thinking, like how smart am I, how, how much can I figure out, and so on. How much information can I process, how much do I know, all that kind of stuff. But if you think about anything that human beings do, it requires this massive collaboration. You know, just look around the room that you're sitting in. Like, there's no one individual who could create any of the technology that's around us, you know, or, you know, society is just this massively, massively collaborative um, activity 
where no one individual is capable of, you know, any small percentage of what we have as human beings, our technology, our social systems, all of that kind of stuff. Uh, and so thinking really evolved for the group, for many people to be able to come together and jointly pursue complex activities, um, complex goals. That's really what makes people special. If you, if you say, what, what differentiates us from other animals? It's our ability to collaborate in these massive communities where we can pursue arbitrarily complex goals despite no one individual knowing all that much. So, you know, Steve and I both believe that this idea of the sort of lone thinker is, is a really misplaced way to think about what human beings are really evolved for, like what we're really for and what we should celebrate and laud is not individual thinking. It's the ability to help a group, to help contribute to a group pursuing complex goals. How, how well can you do that? And so when confronted uh, with a person who defies science, uh, we want an answer. How can we reach that individual? But with your book, The Knowledge Illusion, it sounds like we need to find a strategy to change movements of thought instead of individual solutions. What do you think? That's a great observation. I mean, this is the really difficult part of all of this, which is that the very foundational and fundamental nature of thinking is that it pushes us towards kind of overestimation of our knowledge and closed-mindedness because we form into these communities and as individuals it can be very hard to appreciate when we have things wrong. That's not necessarily like only a bad thing, right? Like as I said, human beings achieve amazing things by virtue of this ability to form into groups where we can collaborate and work together despite no individual having all of the information. So trying to break through that is extremely difficult. And so we can sort of think about two directions of influence. One would be bottom-up and one would be top-down. Bottom-up is to sort of try to promote, in general, people having a little more intellectual humility, getting people to learn to check their own understanding and question, question more to be more deliberative, to be more thoughtful, to be more careful about the kind of um, views that we take on. When we are projecting some strong view about some complex issue, do we really understand it that well? And so trying to teach that as sort of a general principle, intellectual humility, because the world is really complex, is, is an important thing. I think that is part of the answer, but it's a little idealistic, right? Um, the other thing that we can do is that we can try to do some kind of top-down interventions because that, that will influence the community and hope that that filters down to the individuals. There's various um, ways to think about what those top-down interventions could be. For instance, one of them could be interventional policies within social media to avoid misinformation and all that kind of stuff. And other ones can be trying to influence thought leaders within communities. So if um, you can actually influence, you know, the, some of the leaders that you talked about and get them to realize and appreciate that they don't have the science right, maybe that will filter down. Of course, all of these things are really difficult. And moreover, they all raise really challenging questions about things like free speech, which are not easily adjudicated either, because um, we also want to have freedom to express views and so on. So, so the question of when does a top-down intervention, a policy intervention on social media become a restriction of free speech. That's a really um, difficult one. That's something that, for instance, um, you know, Twitter is under, under their new leadership. Is, that's the big um, struggle that they're, that they're trying to figure out. You know, to what extent should we have a more free and open 
uh, environment where misinformation can flow versus how, you know, how do we restrict that kind of thing? And there's no easy answers to any of this. And that's why this issue of why it's such a challenging and almost intractable problem, you know, um, we look around and we say, how can people in this day and age still believe in a QAnon conspiracy theory? But these forces that create that are so powerful and there's no, there's no sort of magic bullet, no silver bullet, I think, to, to solve these problems. It's a matter of coming at it from both of these different directions and trying a lot of different things. Let me finish by being a little more, a little more concrete about that kind of a situation. Here's what I would say. Do not try to change their mind. I think what you should instead do is you should ask a lot of questions. And the idea would be that instead of being in, in an advocacy mindset, you're in an explanatory mindset. An advocacy mindset means that you're going to advocate for your position and tell them why they're wrong. And that's not a very effective mode. For the reasons that I talked about already, people are, defen- are going to be defensive. They're going to fall back on what they already believe, and they're not going to listen to you. And in fact, you yourself might probably don't understand the issue in a lot of depth either. That's kind of the nature of these things. Um, what you should instead do is try to learn. Like, why is it that this person maintains the view that they do and try to understand what is kind of the best version of what they're trying to say. And in the process of jointly trying to explain the issue together, that now you're in sort of a cooperative environment. And the idea would be that you're not trying to change people's mind. What you're instead trying to do is open them up to the fact that, that, that maybe the issue is more complex and there's more going on than they had initially thought. So the goal should not be to change. The goal should be to open And in the process, you might open your own mind and realize that actually you don't understand it in that much depth. And then maybe you can make a plan together to learn more. Okay, let's look this up, actually. Let's let's do a little work together. And I think that what you will find if you engage in that kind of explanatory rather than advocacy approach is that um, you're going to feel much better. You will both feel much better at the end than if you sit there and shout at each other and, uh, and you both leave the table the dinner table saying, man, what an idiot, <laughs> right? So I think uh, that that's my, my concrete advice to you. And it can be challenging. It can be difficult because sometimes, I don't remember what name you use, but aunt whatever or uncle whatever seems to be very close-minded and doesn't want to listen and has everything wrong and can just give you sound bites from whatever source you think is completely ridiculous. Um, but you have to be patient and, and go into it with a, with a learning mindset. Most people love the, their family members, even if they get frustrated by them. So I, that's what I would say is, you know, go in with a, with a warmth and a, and a, and a, and a desire to learn and, and, a, and a feeling, a, a, like a positive feeling of this person's not an idiot. They're not a terrible person. Um, what they are is, you know, maybe a human being. And, uh, and so let's, let's go in this with the, with the idea of not trying to change their mind, but trying to open their mind and trying at the same time to open your own. This paper on knowledge over confidence is open access. It's free for anybody to read. You can find it in the journal Science, published July 2022. As always, I will put lots of links in my weekly show blog at ecoshock.org. From the University of Colorado Boulder, Dr. Fernbach, thank you for sharing your mind with our listeners. Totally my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Radio Ecoshock. The tool of logic used by Fernbach and his colleagues may find hostile reception in some fields in some of my listeners. For example, it sounds like Fernbach thinks scientists agree that genetically modified foods are safe and good, and so is nuclear power. I don't think that. Have I been filled with alternative facts? 
or blinded by a cultural preference. With nuclear power, there is a consensus among geopolitical historians that countries with nuclear power have a heightened ability to produce nuclear weapons. We presume there is a scientific consensus that using nuclear weapons on cities and in large numbers of people is a bad thing. But even with a proven link, how can one consensus, pro-nuke power, survive the consequences of following a consensus against it due to nuclear weapons dangers? So in this study, Fernbach and his colleagues asked about this consensus. Nuclear power is necessary and should be expanded to mitigate climate change. Really? In over 500 interviews with scientists, perhaps one person said that. Consensus on human-induced climate change, evolution, and the Big Bang Theory? Well, that's easy to find. Some have mass statements signed by tens of thousands of scientists. But most sources claiming a consensus for nuclear to help solve climate change come from the nuclear industry or people known to be in their orbit. The two citations in Fernbach et al., to back this nuclear assumption, are weak. I tracked them down. This should have been removed from this study. But I still find the basic conclusions of the paper really helpful for all of us. You're listening to EcoShock Radio for the world. I'm Alex Smith. Get it all at our website, ecoshock.org. This is Radio EcoShock with your host, Alex Smith. So many things going wrong, with more teetering on the edge of collapse. Continuing waves of COVID impact the economy, which has its own deep problems. Storm after storm pummels North America, while Europe gets spring in January. Some countries are bankrupt, inflation rages, wars back, I won't go on. These interlocking threats have been called a polycrisis. If we can't tame them, are we entering an age of permanent crisis? Eric Asadurian has more big-picture experience than most people. For years, he was editor of the influential World Watch State of the World reports. We will ask Eric about polycrisis and permacrisis. But I also want to know about his next stage. Why is he promoting a new green religion? Eric Asadurian, welcome to Radio EcoShock. Thank you, Alex. Are you still in your home base of Middletown, Connecticut? I am. Yeah, I grew up in Connecticut and then lived uh, much of my adult life in D.C., near World Watch, and uh, returned here to be uh, near my family, and uh, it's a more resilient place, I think, as, uh, as the climate changes as well. So tell us about your recent conference in Denmark. Sure. Uh, so I, back in the uh, end of July, joined uh, about... 40 other researchers who focus on the polycrisis, on ecological change, on specific subfields. There were uh, chemistry experts and others to, to talk about the polycrisis. Uh, and that is kind of unique uh, in that most of the time, as many said in the conference, we're the lone voice talking about the possibility of societal collapse in a conference, uh, and uh, it was quite refreshing from my perspective to actually be able to talk about this very openly without having to convince people that, well, this could be a real possibility, uh, and talk about, well, what do we do about this, if anything? 
more people are coming around worrying about next steps in a broken age, Columbia University is again organizing their conference called At What Point Managed Retreat, Habitability and Mobility in an Era of Climate Change. Eric, is it time to retreat and from what? I think more of the question is to where. Uh, as uh, you noted, uh, Europe is warmer. The, the new numbers came out just today that uh, this was the fifth warmest year in history, in recorded history. Europe had its second warmest uh, year and the warmest summer, which, of course, we saw having massive impacts on, uh, on drought, on wildfire, on transportation, energy production. I don't think it's realistic when we have a population that just this last year hit 8 billion people to retreat anywhere. Um, it's certainly important to manage the growth of certain areas. I, uh, a few years ago, I wrote a little uh, op-ed for the Hartford Current, the main Connecticut paper, encouraging population growth here, uh, or at least creating space for more people, because as uh, Florida becomes less habitable, as Puerto Rico becomes less habitable, uh, which we saw after their Hurricane Maria, there are relations already here, so a lot of new uh, individuals came and, and migrated to Connecticut. And Connecticut is a good example because it has such old urban areas that are beautifully built and completely underpopulated at this point that we could actually effectively absorb population, ideally from areas that have been uh, affected by uh, climate disruptions. Um, but that takes you know, a huge amount of policy planning, as well as, first and foremost, a recognition that the future is not rosy, uh, but that, you know, maybe we'll, we'll make it a little bit less difficult by making these technological shifts that are praised so regularly in the media, like electric electrification, that kind of thing. But really what we need to be doing is reducing consumption, reducing production, and shifting our understanding of what a sustainable and positive future is going to look like. Well, I think we could say we have to retreat from all outgrowth on all fronts. And I want to get on to the fact that most of us picture the focus on threats that are closest to us. I mean, just imagine coping with the never-ending storm track in California these days, and listeners in the West see that as the crisis, even as state hospitals fill up at the same time with the sick and the dying. Talk to us about the ways the elements of a polycrisis interact with one another. Yeah, that is the trillion-dollar question. I was going to say million-dollar question, but uh, again, I was reading the news this morning, and uh, the newest uh, disaster losses came out just today from Munich Ray, and uh, it was another above $100 billion insured losses year, I think $270 billion in total. Um, and in the old normal, there was never a year more than $50 billion uh, until Hurricane Katrina hit. So, you know, the new normal is creating this permacrisis, this continuing uh, lack of stability that uh, is disrupting economic systems, is disrupting societies, is disrupting localities. Um, every local crisis means much less resilience and ability to think about helping others far away. You know, COVID uh, really took us away from the ability to really start planning on climate change, even though that would have been a perfect time to really start thinking new as everything was shut down and there was a brief moment of hope 
in the climate sector that, oh, maybe we can use this crisis to really go in a, in a better direction. But um, we saw from the rebound of, of emissions and the rest of it that uh, that didn't happen. So I'm not sure, you know, how, what happens. Do we just kind of lose the initiative uh, as we're dealing with wildfire after wildfire after giant flood? Uh, you know, this, this is the third year of, of La Nina weather, which, you know, is at least partly uh, responsible for the fires in Australia and the floods in Pakistan. Uh, so much is changing and not out of our control, but triggered by us and now increasingly out of our control that, that we're unable to react very strategically. We haven't quite hit that stage where we're starting to make stupid decisions uh, like geoengineering, but it's becoming an increasing clamor in the background. And I am worried that we make those, either we yield those decisions to people who are maybe trying to make profit off of this um, fear or are just simply wanting to pursue this as a, as a profitable solution to our climate problems. And, and that's a real risk is that people start using the ongoing and growing fear that we have to push us in even worse directions than we're already heading. Well, in the second part of our interview, we'll come to some of your solutions to overcome those fears, but I, I want to continue on this track for now. In your January 3rd article, published at resilience.org, you discuss permacrisis. What is that, and how would we know if that has arrived? Well, that uh, was a new word for me as well. Uh, I saw it in the, um, the Collins Dictionary, made that their word of the year. Uh, and simply, it means an extended period of instability and insecurity, especially one resulting from a series of catastrophic events. So really, it, for me, after having talked about polycrisis for the last five months on and off with this uh, community and in this conference, um, permacrisis just felt like the culmination of these multiple converging crises uh, so that we're in that kind of permanent state. Are we there already? I don't know. I think, you know, this is going to take a look backwards from 20 years after the point where we entered a permacrisis or where we lost kind of the initiative on dealing with these converging crises to, to be able to, historians will probably say it better, where uh, this is the point where um, we just kind of lost control. I hope we haven't gotten there yet. I mean, I know the real challenge for me is that the real positive stuff that people point to as, as ways that we're addressing this aren't necessarily solutions in the first place. Right? So the Inflation Reduction Act um, is celebrated because it's really going to help the United States uh, electrify and move towards a renewable energy future. But it's very much a consumer future fueled by renewable energy, which is ecologically impossible with the, you know, even just the 300 million of us in, in America, but then magnified that out to, to do that in other countries, into Europe, into uh, Indonesia, Philippines, Australia, you know, on and on, all these countries are aspiring to electrify and, and, and follow this consumer path. That's just going to hyper-spiral us into a permacrisis. And that's not to say, hey, that's uh, so we should enjoy this electrification and, and those who haven't done it yet, too bad for you. It's more recognizing that a truly just and sustainable future is a much reduced consumption future with a very simplified level of comfort 
Uh, you know, I mean, that's not to say uncomfortable, uh, but it is, uh, you know, more of a 1970s or 1960s America kind of feel, you know, sm- much smaller homes, you know, walkable, bikeable, you know, maybe more sweaters in the winter and less, you know, natural gas pumping into our homes to keep us warm at 70 plus degrees and on and on. But that's been not promoted for so long that that sounds like the hair shirt uh, environmentalist uh, <laughs> uh, you know, vision of the future, which is uh, out of vogue right now. And, and that is unfortunate because that's what we're going to need to get to if we want to avoid a, a permacrisis. Eric, what happened to the World Watch reports? And has anything come along to replace those whole world snapshots? Well, World Watch, I think, had its life cycle, just like most organizations do, uh, some longer than others. It was actually founded in 1974 and made it all the way to 2017. And, you know, actually was just writing about several luminaries who passed away in 2022, uh, Herman Daly being one of them, and he was on the board for many years at World Watch, and so that got me thinking about it, too. So yeah, World Watch, it was, it was celebrated. Um, those reports were really, I think, influential in drawing attention to the much more holistic interactions between different aspects of sustainability. Uh, I think those reports are as important as they were. Uh, I think you can point to some variety of reasons why they were less needed, um, maybe perhaps because there are many more uh, sustainability organizations producing reports now. People absorb information in less book form, unfortunately. Uh, you know, a lot fewer people are reading books, uh, as, as shocking as that is, but um, true as it is. But also, I think, you know, organizational dynamics were at play, and it was um, the leadership of the organization uh, that, uh, I think, accelerated the shortening of its lifespan, uh, truthfully. So it looks like industrial civilization, which feeds everybody listening here, is actually killing our chances for a survivable future. Should we hope for a big collapse coming sooner rather than later? It's a key question. And in fact, uh, you know, I wrote on this question after the conference because that really did come up several times. And and I don't have an answer, and, and I don't think anyone can give a real answer to that because... I'm not sure if you're a science fiction fan, but uh, you know one of the, my favorite books is Dune, right? And uh, and this is a, a, a book that really plays with the sense of time and prescience and all this, and you know, and the, and the protagonist actually kind of can see different futures. Um, if we could do that, and we could see, well, okay, if we encourage collapse faster. You know, does that mean there's more biocapacity left as, as the dust settles so that we can rebuild and have a better future? Does it mean that, you know, it triggers a, a nuclear confrontation and kind of ending civilization even faster? Uh, you know, there's so many question marks that um, in, in the Dune context, it's this, you know, black nexus where you can't actually even know. Um, and, and I think we're there. Uh, you know, there are real reasons why nudging us towards, um, you know, a, a, a degrowth strategy much, much faster. You know, even, well, degrowth is not the right word because that suggests a planned, intentional contraction. But even a unplanned contraction, could that help us to 
have a better future in the 100-year time frame because it slowed down economic growth and, and emissions production enough that serious climate tipping points didn't get hit. And I don't know. I mean, I, I actually hesitate to answer because it's just it's so complicated. And no matter which scenario, uh, sooner or later, there is going to be horrific human suffering involved in the transition because of how much we've overshot Earth's capacity, Earth's biocapacity, and how just how, how many people there are on the planet. So that's as good of an answer I can give you. <laughs> Check out the Radio EcoShock website. We're at ecoshock.org. You are listening to Radio EcoShock. I'm Alex Smith with our guest, Eric Asadurian. He's the former editor of World Watch Reports and now an independent researcher and consultant. In our current state, Eric says, a new green religion could help. When did you begin your voyage into a green religion and why? I think it was a, a slow, gradual um, thing and then sudden. So, uh, you know, I actually studied uh, ecological religions back in college and, um, and, and more broadly missionary religions and anthropology and, and psychology. And, and so I think my mind was always primed towards the anthropological perspective. In fact, at Worldwatch, I was writing quite often about how we need cultural shifts, a new cultural paradigm, uh, like Dana Meadows once advocated uh, in, in systems change. You know, the most powerful way to change a system is by changing the paradigm. And so I really applied that at Worldwatch to, okay, how do we shift our culture from consumerism, that type of paradigm, to a sustainability paradigm, and, and worked in that context you know, very academically for a long time as we grappled with this question of, is sustainability still possible, and what do we do if it's not, which was the um, State of the World 2013 topic. I uh, even wrote a, a chapter on this question of, well, what what would a really effective environmental movement look like? And I started painting this picture of, well, it would be a much deeper missionary philosophical movement, right, where you're actually sharing a deeper understanding of the earth, our relationship to the earth, uh, cultural norms around that, rituals, community building, uh, social services, which is a key way of spreading a missionary philosophy. Uh, religion is a loaded word, um, and I use that now. At the time, I hesitated, especially in the context of a sustainability think tank. Um, but one man's philosophy is another man's religion. Right? I mean, uh, Christianity is just a philosophy, but to a Christian, it is the way, it is the truth. Um, so and same with Islam and Buddhism and um, and the rest. So for, for me, having a philosophy or uh, a religion, which I think really is a philosophy embodied in practice uh, daily uh, and, and in, embedded in community, uh, is a way to really deepen one's relationship to the earth, uh, deepen one's way of being an environmentalist. When I was a professional environmentalist uh, at Worldwatch, um, not that I'm not professional anymore, but it was really a nine to five thing where we would we would do our work, we would try to save the world from nine to five, maybe have a happy hour, but we wouldn't interact as a community. We wouldn't, you know, take on uh, a little bit of babysitting for the colleague who just had a new child, or or go to someone's 
dad's funeral or, or that kind of thing. There was nothing, you know, no deeper community uh, building. And I've seen that in, in the many organizations I worked with. Um, and I crave that. And I think the environmental community suffers from not having that. So for me, uh, in the, a couple of years ago when I started um, the Guyan Way, the uh, idea was to really create a deep, ecocentric, uh, philosophical community. Some see it as just a philosophy. Others see it as a religion. And, and you know, for me, you know, the earth, or Gaia, is, is the center. Right? It's without Gaia, which we are completely dependent on, um, we die. You know, it's, uh, it has a little, I have a little mantra, which is serve Gaia or die. And that's not to humanize or anthropomorphize the earth. It's just to recognize if we don't subjugate our own will to uh, keeping the earth alive and well, then we don't make it. You know, and that's actually uh, Islam is, uh, you know, God's will is at the center. And this is not that way. There's no prayer in that sense of, of somebody's going to respond to your prayer, but um, you know there is a there's lots of meditations, there's fasting, there's ways to ritualize our existence, which is a real part of all cultures, and uh, to feel more connected with this earth and uh, and, the, and the local systems and the, and the global systems that we are part of and, and depend on. You decided to put out a weekly newsletter for people who want to develop their spiritual side in line with natural reality. How did that grow into a community, and how far along is this new green church? That's a great you know, practical question. I, I truthfully did not know what was going to happen. This was um, 2019, I think June, where I just said, I'm going to just start putting up an essay once a week. That'll keep me focused on this. Uh, and see if anyone's reading it. And uh, enough people started reading it that I said, okay, I think I can do a newsletter here. And uh, truthfully, in the beginning, I did a little bit of spamming colleagues and friends, um, including them in my original newsletter. And over time, you know, it, it became more organic where, you know, some people unsubscribed, new people found it. And as, you know, I think maybe by half a year, uh, yeah, in January of... 2020, so right before the world really changed um, and everything became online, we started having some online um, Zoom meetings, uh, you know, some Gaian conversations, we called it, and then we started adding some Gaian discussions of different classic environmental literature, of, of you know, kind of more Gaian-focused uh, readings, to really start building a virtual community not with the goal of ending it there, because I do really believe that uh, to have any sort of philosophy grow, it has to be more than just virtual, but for two reasons. One, I think um, John Michael Greer makes a great strong point that the Internet is highly technical and dependent on, on huge numbers of resources, so the idea that in a polycrisis scenario everybody keeps getting easy access to the Internet um, whether for political restriction reasons or for just simple economic or ecological resource reasons, is kind of naive. So that alone is enough reason to to root a philosophy in geography. But also, you know, it's an earth-based religion uh, or philosophy, and it, you know, it should be locally rooted in real space. So we have virtual gatherings, and those are welcome to all. But we also are slowly building uh, local guy and guilds, 
Uh, these include forest or nature meditations each week or each month, depending on the, the local community, uh, and a way to connect with other self-identified guides or environmentally-minded individuals and get out into nature and connect to one's living ecosystems and uh, the face of Gaia near them, in a sense, you know, the local, the local bioregion that they inhabit. In a presentation last June at Harvard Divinity School, you were a bit prophetic, I think. You said there's a good chance the hospital system will collapse. Well, right now, there are hundreds of millions of Chinese people sick with COVID. There's no chance they can all get medical care. People are on their own. And the same is increasingly true in Britain and even Canada. Tell us about the example of Turkmenistan and what that paints for our possible future. Wow. Let me unpack that a little bit because there were a few different elements there. I think if I, if I remember correctly, in the hospital systems, there's two different pieces you're referring to. There's, I am married to a Turkmen woman who grew up most of her life in Turkmenistan. And so she lived through the Soviet Union's collapse. So that was a political collapse. You know, an economic more than I would say ecological, but you know to see to have been there and to see how the systems go on with the infrastructures they have, but the cultures change accordingly. Right, so uh, you can still open a tap in a house in Turkmenistan uh, and get water; it's just not purified water anymore. So that means everybody's boiling their water. Um, you know, so you have some systems still working, some in a longer state of failure. Hospitals have those older Soviet-trained doctors who can still do a good job, but high-tech medicine like uh, cancer treatment, uh, if you don't have the resources to go to India to do medical tourism or to Turkey, um, you die. And I'm not being crass about it or flippant. It's just that is, that is the reality there. So I see that is a possibility. Uh, if I was in that context, I was talking about more in the longer term. I mean, the systems, if we look realistically at the ecological changes combined with how we're continuing to grow our economies and our populations are continuing to grow, including being encouraged to grow by economists, by politicians, and the rest, those all match up to triggering some sort of ecological and resultant social and economic crises. So there will be many hospital systems that fail. I don't think I was referring to you know, these kind of small crunches on during epidemics or pandemics, which I think are inevitable, but not, this is not failure as, as much as I was referring to kind of systems breaking down more broadly. And in that context, I was referring to kind of really getting, identifying Guyan's role as sustaining key medical knowledge. You know, the Christians during the Dark Ages were always celebrated with having, you know, kept some key knowledge alive in monasteries. Uh, I think midwifery, uh, which has been, you know, is a lost art for the most part in the United States, much more actively alive in, in Europe. But ecologically speaking, it, it causes a tiny amount of the damage compared to a hospital medicalized birth, a cesarean section, for example. It's better for the baby, it's better for the mother. So finding those ways to keep that knowledge alive and thriving now, but also keeping that knowledge alive when systems are breaking down and, and people really need that is, is what I was referring to in, in that context. What is next for the guy in religion, and how can people find out more? 
Well, I think the hope, this is incredibly young, and I do not know exactly what's next. The idea is to invite people to engage with the community, with the ideas, try the practices of fasting during the full and new moon as a way to build personal resilience, as a way to connect with the lunar cycle, which we often ignore um, because we're mostly inside and because of light pollution and the rest of it. But there are lots of practices that people can connect with, and you can find all that on, on guyanism.org. Uh, we have you know, regular monthly uh, gatherings online, and, and, and I hope over time people see the value of it and more local guilds grow and more energy spreads uh, and into those local communities around the world. And this may also help to give us a little more hope and peace on the inside where we really need it if we're going to keep going. That's my thoughts on this. We have been talking with longtime world watcher Eric Asadurian. He's now promoting an earth-based religion, Guyanism, and you can find out more, as he says, at Guyanism.org, and that's spelled G-A-I-A-N-ism. Eric, thank you for sharing this time with us. Yeah, it's my pleasure. Thank you for the really thoughtful questions and uh, spending some time with me. I'm Alex Smith for Radio EcoShock. To get more on the basis of denial, I also recommend my 2017 interview with genius medical researcher Ajit Varki. Check out his book, Denial, Self-Deception, False Beliefs, and the Origins of the Human Mind. Essentially, Varki says, reality is too harsh for our evolved brains. We tame it with all sorts of denial. For example, we have to tell ourselves daily, we won't die today, and we will live tomorrow, so we do have to make plans and preparations. We cannot function without all kinds of denial. To deny is human. Life is not just about science, is it? Or a grip on the facts? But about choices of what to do with what we know. We must go further than science can tread into the wild world of humans. Art, social contracts, sexuality, the psychology of power, justice, religious beliefs, and so much more. I'm Alex Smith. Hang in there. Thank you for caring about this world.